Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathine, and every other week, I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers everywhere. This week, I had the privilege of sitting down with Ariel Davis. She has a robust background working to support organizations that uplift cultural expression across diverse communities. She's currently the co-founder of the Arts Administrators of Color Network, a nonprofit organization that she helped establish in 2016. There, she has stewarded programs that provide professional development and networking opportunities for arts leaders throughout the United States. She serves as co-chair of the board for the organization and led the board of directors through the strategic planning process in 2021. Previously, she served as senior manager of Impact Communications at the Save the Music Foundation, where she supported the organization in producing content that showcased the impact of the organization's 25-year body of work. Ariel also supported the establishment of the Lewis Prize for Music, an organization that provides financial support for after-school and out-of-school music organizations across the country, where she led their communications efforts. She also served as program manager for the Social Impact Department at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, where she helped manage large-scale projects and events geared toward amplifying the work of art artists throughout the performing arts sector on a local and national level. In 2022, she was named one of the top 50 marketers on the rise by the African American Marketing Association. Her passion for cultural expression began on stage as a French horn player. She has also had the opportunity to perform with ensembles across the world, from the Grammy stage with Lizzo to an international festival in Guadalupe, celebrating the work of composer Chevalier de Saint-Georges. She also takes as many opportunities to visit her hometown of Detroit, Michigan as she can, and is a graduate of Howard University, where she obtained her degree in music business. Well, Ariel, thank you so much for being here this morning. I'm really excited to be able to chat today. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here as well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited because I feel like this conversation is definitely going to reflect how nonlinear and multifaceted your career can seem, but it also really all ties together when you look at all the pieces, which I feel like is always sort of how it goes. So let's sort of start from the beginning, which is you played the French horn at Howard University. I'd love to hear why you chose to start your early adult life there. Yeah. So I was really privileged growing up. I grew up in a small city right outside of Detroit, Michigan called Southfield, which is a black suburb and had a lot of different socioeconomic situations involved. There were a high number of immigrants, people from, you know, Detroit itself for generations on generations that had recently like made the move to Southfield. And I could go on and on and on. But I'll say within that, there was a culture of embracing all kinds of different ways of being that as I've grown older, I've come to realize really helped set strong footprint and why and how I do the work that I do now. And one of those privileges and, you know, resources that existed was a strong music education system. My middle school band director who introduced me to the French horn is a gentleman by the name of Randy Scott, who I always recommend folks check out. He's an incredible saxophonist. And the first day of our band class shared to the students or with the students that if you're a and you played the French horn, the bassoon, the elbow, and a couple of other instruments. 
instruments that weren't like typically known that, you know, you had easy access to any scholarship you needed. And for me, having a mother who has come from Jamaica, I'm, you know, first generation on that side. And father that, I mean, quite frankly, you know, struggled with employment. I knew that I needed to find some scholarship money in some way, shape or form. So that was my ticket. I also thought it looked cool, you know, very sculptural in my 11 year old brain. And within the first year, I mean, I still have this diary entry where I talked about how playing the horn made me feel so powerful and really helped bring a voice that I had always been searching for. And that just laid the benchmark for me. So fast forward in high school, I had the secondary privilege of a band director by the name of Damien Crutcher, who plays the French horn, continues to do amazing work in Detroit, where he's from, you know, just in getting access to music education for students in the city. And Damien, being a horn player himself, really helped tap me into different networks. And one of those networks was through Howard University. A gentleman by the name of Kelvin Washington was just serendipitously at my high school and asked me to play. I played. He asked me how I did on my test scores, which, you know, in 2005 was a big deal. Luckily, not as big of a deal now. And because of my playing aptitude and my test scores, I was able to get a full ride scholarship to Howard University, as well as enough money to buy my own French horn, which I had never been able to do prior to that. So, I mean, a bit of a long-witted answer around, you know, that question of how I ended up at Howard, but so many aspects of my childhood journey really helped frame out why and how I work the way that I do. It's the thing of having a community around you where you can freely express yourself as you wish. It's having the resource of mentors and adults that are passionate about the work and able to assist and provide high levels of education in a culturally specific way. And it's, you know, the recognition that within the Black community itself, right, we are constantly engaging with one another and building networks out and have been doing so long before social media existed in order to ensure that we're pouring forward for future generations. I was very privileged to have that around me. And so all of that is kind of what spirals into much of the work that I've done since. That's really amazing. And one of the things that actually struck me as you were talking is the fact that you had community and mentors in your life who were able to give you those little but not so little kind of hacks on how do you get the system to be more accessible and more of an option, right? For you and saying like, look, here is how you can get a scholarship. These are the instruments to focus on. Let me connect you to the right person who is you know, in the Howard network. It's so reflective of how I think so much of the world works for better or worse. You Usually there's, you know, a lot we can point to of like, it's kind of problematic that that's how it happens, that it's access to information and to the right people that can make all the difference. But that's truly how it happens. So I agree, you were so lucky to be able to find those people and have those people be so open with their knowledge and their time. And so you you made it to Howard, like you said, got a full ride, which is incredible. Um, but you also chose to walk away, you decided it wasn't the right choice for you. And I would love to hear sort of in your words, why that was the case. Yeah, I mean, I was young and patient, I think. <laughs> I think that's really what it boils down to. I mean, Howard is a special, special place. Howard is where I learned about folks like Julius Watkins, who was a horn player from Detroit, Michigan, jazz horn player. I mean, even with the privileged background that I had in terms of community, we weren't taught about Julius Watkins. Like people aren't taught about Julius Watkins and, you know, these special ways. And so it's where I uncovered so much of my history that I just hadn't had that depth. But also there's a lack of 
resource that continues to exist within the university that had some detrimental effects for me, I felt at that time and at that age. The orchestra program was not and continues to not be as robust as it should, given, you know, the contributions that African-Americans, Black folks have made to the form, given the fact that so many of those instruments have a history from Africa. If you really dig deep into the history of many orchestral instruments, it comes from the continent, right? And so, yeah, there are those resources that I just felt were lacking, to be very honest. And I've heard a lot of people talk to this. I was unsure on what my future would look like. And that's why podcasts and platforms like these are so important, I think, because so often when you're unsure of where you're heading in those early stages of your career, and when you don't have examples that kind of put you at ease, that's kind of normal to still be figuring it out. It's helpful. So just props to you for, you know, creating this platform. But yeah, at the time, I wasn't sure where I was going. I knew I didn't want to play professionally. That seemed boring to me. And I knew I didn't want to be in classrooms all day as much as I love giving lessons and teaching in shorter stint. Daily classroom management was just not something I was interested in. I ended up stepping away, working in the service industry, where I actually was a hostess at a Cuban restaurant that, you know, played all kinds of music at night. I was the door girl there. I ended up bartending for some time. And in the midst of all of that, I continued to freelance as a musician. And while that was happening, I was pushing myself to be a bit more extroverted, to connect with new people, to like kind of take a step away from the academic sphere and step more into, I mean, quite frankly, what is typical life for Americans. And that perspective was deeply beneficial. I, you know, ran into folks that I continue to be friends with to this day, folks that were running El Salvadorian drag shows in the city to folks that were starting their own business and were using this experience in the service industry to help put some money in that direction. I ran into it a lot. One of the things that I started to see was some of my classmates beginning their own organizations. And I was deeply inspired by that. These are organizations like the Musicianship, which Jeff Tribble uh, was running at the time and Washington Women in Jazz Festival, which was founded by Amy Borman. And I reached out to those folks and I asked if I could help support in any way and volunteer and just learn. And luckily they opened their arms. And within the first you know, year of my work with each organization, I saw tremendous growth and I felt at home. I was like, okay, so this is what administering the arts and being behind the scenes kind of looks like. All of that work I found just really exciting because for me, it, it helped me see more and more clearly where ultimately the power is held when it comes to the creative arts, when it comes to these nonprofit structures, when it comes to grant making of it all, the grant writing of it all, which takes a lot of time. Hopefully that will shift. You know, just seeing the day-to-day management of people and personalities and like a variety of stakeholders, but in a very grassroots way, I'm always thankful that my colleagues were willing to have me on board in their initial journeys on those programs. So yeah, I hope that answered the question. No, that was really helpful. And I sort of want to break that beautiful response into two pieces that I'd be curious to get your advice on. And I'd love to kind of dig into what you've actually learned being on that side of the arts world. So the first piece is when it comes to positioning yourself for jobs, a lot of the people in the second community have worked service jobs, you know, work in hospitality, work in restaurants, work in retail. And one of the things that they constantly struggle with was when they go in for interviews that they submit their resume for more traditional, you know, office jobs or nonprofit jobs, how to really position those past experiences 
experiences as being valuable to employers that don't necessarily work in that space. So I have some thoughts on this, but I'm really curious to hear sort of what advice you would give to folks who are in that sort of in-between space of wanting to transition away from only doing service jobs into more air quotes, traditional office jobs. Mm, That's a great question. I mean, I can ultimately share what has worked for me and share what's worked from my own perspective. Some of my colleagues that have made similar shifts. And I think it's really, and this is going to sound so crazy to say, just given shakeups recently, but a lot of it is based on social media. Quite frankly, I think a lot of it, I know a lot of it is based on looking at networks and tapping into those networks and strategic ways and wealth thought out ways. A lot of it is literally just, you know, putting pen to paper and writing out daily and weekly and monthly and yearly goals for yourself. It's all those basic things that I know I barely paid attention to until the age of 25. That really, I think, helps at the course in making a shift. It's being very intentional in, you know, the language that you use to yourself and for yourself in the progress that you're making as well. I mean, I know there have been times I sit and I'm like, oh, I I feel like I haven't done much or I'm not doing enough. And then I have to really go back and look at the drawing board and look at past notes and be reflective and pat myself on the back. It's the thing of sometimes this is so silly, but during COVID, I did the whole like love languages test. And my love language is definitely words of affirmation. I've taken it several times. Sadly, it still is that. And so not to feed yourself in a narcissistic way, right? These words of affirmation, but I do think that it's important to, as much as we all are always trying to improve ourselves by giving critique to, you know, softly give ourselves kudos as well. I think that's just really important in terms of that shift, right? From service industry to the typical nonprofit career. I think that's important to do, especially because I do sadly see the arts and the service industry kind of living in a similar space where people take advantage of it. They don't even realize all the work that it takes. And so because of those overall societal stereotypes or framings, it's important for, I think, we as individuals and amongst each other and for ourselves to like really laud ourselves for the accomplishments that we do hold in the industry and uh, what we do learn. And that language that we affirm for ourselves gets regurgitated in the way that we speak in an interview, in the way that we craft our bio and our LinkedIn pages and our social media outputs and all of those things. So yeah, I would say just really looking, you know, to put it short at social media as a tool to frame up your story and how you want to make shifts in your career in a very frank and honest way. I think that's a good place to start. It was beneficial for me and I've seen it beneficial for others. And that second piece is just making sure you're not just pushing yourself forward, but patting yourself on the back along the way. Yeah, that resonates really deeply. I feel like half the conversations I have with people are just a exercise in getting them to appreciate everything that they've accomplished because they usually come to the conversation feeling like I'm not qualified for anything. I have never done this kind of job before. They're never going to accept me. And you just sit there and have a conversation and force them to talk about, give me an example of when you had to do this in your job or give me an example of when you had to problem solve or tell me about a time that you got praised by a professor or by a manager. And that light bulb slowly 
goes off of like, oh, okay, I like I do have something to contribute here. And I, I love that advice of if you can internalize that for yourself as best you can, that will reflect in interviews and how you show up for future roles. I think that's really fantastic advice. I'd also say the other thing that you had said a few minutes ago, which I think also is really important when people are thinking about people who move from like service or arts type roles where you interact with such a huge cross-section of the community, right? Working in a restaurant, for example, you mentioned like, you know, people who run El Salvadorian drag shows, right? That's such a special and important part of the community and particularly in a city like DC. And so when you shift to the nonprofit space, I think one of the reasons that Second Day sort of began is we are aware that typically people who go into the nonprofit space come from a fairly narrow set of backgrounds. It is usually fairly privileged and white, upper middle class. And for people who have spent a lot of time in the service industry, their world is really big in a lot of ways. And I think that that's so important from a worldview to bring to the nonprofit space that is like significantly lacking. So for people who are listening, who are like, I've only ever worked service industry jobs, your perspective in the nonprofit space is so lacking and so valuable. So don't be afraid of it. That would be the other reflection I would share based on what you've said too. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's funny, the new executive director for arts administrators of color network, boop, 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 shout out to Carla. She also used to work in the service industry. And we talk about that all the time. Just to your point, there is such a lack of cultural nuance that comes when your network is so big and broad and vast and deep compared to folks that have gone through a more traditional path, right? Of like four-year college, perhaps a master's in internship leads to job and then they're like just chilling. I feel like more people should really uplift this. The more experience I believe you can gain, particularly in your 20s, the better you're set up for the long term because you have this wealth of relationships that you can draw from at that point. You have the wealth of a variety of perspective. You have all of these elements that ultimately are invaluable and of such deep service and also make the work authentic and real, which we need, particularly if we're over here pouring and spending so many millions of dollars in those directions. So we are on the same page. That is good to hear. And the other piece that I wanted to touch on, which has been a big part of your journey, which you brought up is, you know, you were freelancing, doing French Horn on the side and sort of building connections really strategically and thoughtfully with members, particularly of the DC community, which has people haven't been has a really cool, vibrant grassroots art scene that I recommend checking out. But you took on a lot of unpaid work, a lot of volunteer work. And it seems to me made a strategic choice of like, this is a space I want to be close to. So I'm going to give some of my unpaid time and energy to be close to these spaces. And so my question to you is, one, is that a fair assessment of sort of how you thought about it? But two, what is your perspective on balancing? This is such a fundamental question. I think I've asked this many times to many people, but I think it's important is how do you balance thinking about putting yourself out there and maybe taking on unpaid work, but you have a reason to do it versus you're being taken advantage of and it's crossed over to another place and suddenly it's taking away from you rather than giving to you. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this particular theme. Mm-hmm. That's such an important question, particularly now. I've been hearing people use the whole term pre-COVID times. I think that's a real term that we should all adopt because pre-COVID, it was interesting because I was saying to a lot of people, take your time, don't overstress yourself, don't do da da da. But I was working like three jobs at once and then volunteering on other things. And I know this is not a, a, a typical experience. There were so many of us that were like grinding super hard because 
because of all of the cultural elements at play, right? There was the whole Trump thing happening. And I think we all anxiously were trying to fix it. And so I say all of that to say, pre-COVID, I had a stronger propensity to do a lot of that volunteer work and et cetera, because of that energy I had, that anxious energy that I had around where things were heading. And I still have that energy without a doubt, but it was a different level. And so with that, I luckily was not in a space in which I ever felt as though I was being taken advantage of when I signed up to volunteer for things. If anything, I looked at it during that time frame, really, as, mm, I mean, to be very honest, me catching up. Because I had taken a wayward journey in my 20s, at the time, frankly, I felt as though I needed to expend as much energy as possible volunteering to learn as much as I could so that I could catch up. And so I don't know if I would recommend that for everyone. I mean, it did help me and I am happy that I went through that journey, but it wasn't easy. Another thing I will say is I did consider briefly, well, not even briefly, I should say actually for a couple of years, I considered going back and getting my master's degree. And I don't know, as time went on in my head, just financially, I really started to think about it. Would I rather spend $30,000 plus semester over semester at an institution that's still, from what I can read in the curriculum, trying to figure things out? right? Or would I rather spend my time with no money lost volunteering and supporting organizations that I align with in terms of their mission and vision? And how can I draw learning from that in that way through experience while also like taking in resources and books and from noted, you know, colleagues and peers that I respect deeply and all of that. So yeah, I think for me, my approach was one of I'm volunteering here, A, to catch up, but also volunteering because I'd rather spend any resource that I have on the direction of helping to build up these newer institutions that are just so powerful and necessary, in my honest opinion. Things that weren't available when I was going through the early stages of my adulthood and childhood as well. That makes sense. And what I take away from that is a really annoyingly general but important point here, which is everybody has to make the call for themselves. Everybody has a different set of considerations, different bandwidth, different background, and different set of goals. So I think always just trusting your gut of if it's right for you is really, really important here. And knowing when you've hit your limit, knowing when you're not being respected in even your your unpaid time, is it getting you closer to the things that you care about? Does it align with your values? So a lot of things to consider. Everybody's path is going to be different here. So there's no kind of hard and fast answer to this. But to your point, it did work for you. And you ended up landing a job as the executive assistant to the ED of National Arts Strategy and traveled the nation, you know, talking to different arts administrators and the challenges that they were facing. And over and over, you were hearing from sounds like predominantly white directors that they were struggling with, quote, diverse talent. And this is a thing that is such a theme in almost every industry. People being like, there's just no diverse talent anywhere. I'm like, okay. So what's your, what was your reaction at the time when you heard this? And how did it spur you to create your own organization. Yeah, it's so funny because coming out of Howard and with the network that I have, I listened to, watched, and it's these kind of moments in film and TV where you see the only or one of few Black folks in predominantly white space trying essentially to take as much resource and network as they can from that space in order to give back to the community. I mean, yeah, just hearing the things that I was hearing in these rooms, luckily because of my upbringing, I wasn't entirely surprised, but it brought a lot of passion to dispel, you know, the inaccuracies (laughs) 
in that, you know, to hear folks say that there weren't enough cultural experts in communities of color, which essentially is what was being shared, was crazy to me in a country that has built everything from techno to house to salsa to, I mean, all of these cultural experts that exist and were founded in communities of color. So, yeah, I mean, hearing those conversations was helpful, engaging me in a new way around this thing that we continue to call diversity, equity, inclusion in the nonprofit space. And at the time, I was really paying attention to the work that was happening with a woman by the name of Kwame Floyd, who I'd gone to Howard with as well. Kwame at the time was teaching in Baltimore City Public Schools while also migrating into doing administrative work. And I reached out to her and yeah, we essentially started this organization, Arts Administrators of Color Network, to further dispel the mischaracterization of who holds expertise on what's happening musically, visually, you know, artistically, creatively in communities of color. And so I'm really proud of the work that we were able to do with AAC. The first thing that we did, and again, this is 2016, so this strategy might not work now for some of your listeners, but we created a simple Facebook group. And in that Facebook group, I added everyone that I had come to know through all of these buckets of work that I had been into. Juanice did the same. And, you know, within the first year, we were able to host different happy hours and social gatherings and continue conversation online in that moderated Facebook group. Over time, Juanice led the charge in organizing convenings. I helped manage the board, which essentially was staff. We're all volunteering, you know, expending our own resource into the organization. And 2020 hit. And in 2020, I was furloughed from the Kennedy Center alongside quite a few other folks of color. And I started to hear that that had been the case. And this was the top of 2020, maybe like, you know, between March and June-ish where the shakedown was occurring. I was hearing that other people in other institutions and other places were similarly being cut. Yeah, this kind of enraged me because by that point at the Kennedy Center, I'd been very clearly and deliberately working with the HR department, with community stakeholders to push for greater diversity within the institution. And when I started working at that institution in 2017, I was hearing other Black women, you know, come to me, say things like, oh, you're wearing your hair natural. I never thought I could do that here. Kudos to you. I was hearing people, I was the only Black person in a team of, there were about seven of us at the time in a community engagement department in DC, Chocolate City, like that's a problem. And when those furloughs occurred, the department I was in, way more diverse. My boss Black, her boss, Black. We had folks from Colombia, Peru, folks that identified as queer. Out of that diversity, we had two straight white women and it was the two straight white women that kept their jobs. So I say all of that to say, I was, you know, to go from being like the only Black person to then being in a department that was like very clearly diverse and then have it stripped. Yeah, it really pushed me to action. At the time, I was also working with the Lewis Prize for Music, which is an organization, a philanthropic organization that was distributing money. I was able to help push for a COVID relief fund on that front, which I was 
thrilled about. And then with Arts and Ministries of Color Network, we also began a grassroots hosted funding reserve where we were asking community members that did have the privilege to submit money to help redistribute said funds to folks that did not have access to resource financially at the time. And about 13,000 people applied. And this was $200 mini buckets of money. And I have to give kudos here to Josh Jenkins, who helped lead the charge during the time, as well as Cornelius Floyd. And then of course, the rest of the board was there as support getting the word out. But all of that happening led to us being recognized actually by Mackenzie Scott. And we got a million dollars in funding, which was great. So from there, we've been able to hire Carla, who I mentioned a moment ago. And Carla began as our our executive director, which I mean, I'm just so excited to see how the organization continue, continues to grow under her leadership. She's a Chicago-based theater practitioner with deep knowledge, way more than myself around, you know, the industry and years and networks on networks of experience. Board is at a good place. We have some other funding opportunities that will likely be announced, hopefully by the time this goes live. But yeah, just check out Arts and Ministries of Color Network because yeah, I'm excited to see how we can continue to, you know, take the financial support that we have obtained and with Carla's leadership, continue to grow the organization in a way that it can sustainably be there for support financially for folks in the future in terms of connecting and cultivating networks and resources amongst one another in more geographically specific ways. And also how we can build policy around all of that. Being in DC, I see how important it is to connect with these policymakers in a real authentic and engaged way. So I'm excited to see how AAC can serve everyone involved. And if people have already forgotten from my bio, what's incredible about you is everything that you mentioned, AAC is not even your actual full-time job, right? That is everything that you have done the last couple of years is like, to me, sounds like three full-time jobs. That's why I really marvel at your capacity and your passion because so much of social impact, we're like piecing together different careers at a time. And I think one of the things that we had sort of talked about last time we spoke along this thread of funds and power and privilege in this space and in philanthropy is this concept of reciprocity and not saviorism. And I would love to hand you the microphone and like give you lots of space to just like explain what that means to you and how it shows up very practically in your work. Reciprocity. It goes to that thing of I'm not an expert and the world is changing rapidly. There's a new gadget, new trick, new way to approach telling stories daily. There's also a bit of a digital divide that exists in Baltimore and the city that I currently reside in, which is Mount Rainier, Maryland. And so I say all of that to say there are all of these gaps, right, that need to be filled across boards between individuals and to go into a space and to go into a place and think and feel as though you already have all the answers. I've just seen that crash and burn a few too many times, you know, when ego gets in the way and you're not open to exchanging energy and thought with others in a deep way, I think that it becomes flimsy. It's unsustainable when it's it's not enriched as much as possible through relationship building. And it's tough, right? Because reciprocity also means taking time, especially now I'm in my mid thirties, I'm 35. And I hear even now a lot of people just feeling like they're working against the clock. You know, they have that five-year plan, they have that 10-year plan, they are very clear on the direction they want to go. And, you know, sometimes I know I myself have fallen into like an anxious space trying to catch up or trying to get somewhere. But where I've had the most success in 
in my career up until now is when I have like just taken a slight step back and taken that space, you know, in order to build those reciprocal relationships, um, in order to use the technology in the most advantageous way, not just for myself and in my own growth, but also, you know, in and for the growth of others, because that's what I've received. I mean, one of my proudest accomplishments today, and this is going to sound so self-congratulating, but it's true. And that is in being a reference to people for their next job, just seeing and hearing friends that have been trying to work into another industry or work their way into, you know, this very specific place and being able to just like speak to their talent in a way that helps get them there is something that I love, love, love to do. And I think, and I've seen the folks that are, um, really great at that, at building others up around them, tend to be the ones that are most satisfied in their life. You know, I think when you get into a place where there isn't that reciprocity or where there isn't that exchange, it gets to be very isolating. And that I don't think is is healthy at all, particularly in this work where I know I get excited by the passion of others and I hope others, you know, do in exchange. I guess to kind of close this out along the lines of you being very proud as you should be of being a reference for people being sort of that guide for people who are trying to enter this space. What is your favorite piece of advice that you have received and your favorite piece of advice to give others? It might be the same. My favorite piece of advice to receive, I get this actually from my husband very frequently, which is to take the vacation, just get offline. Don't look at the meetings. Like just, you know, when you say you're off, be off. So that I always appreciate because it is easy for me to just be on my laptop until, you know, the of night. <laughs> and so that is something that I always appreciate from men and also from like my closest and dearest friends. And then the piece of advice that I like to give others. I mean, it depends on where they're at, but generally don't be afraid of where you're at. It's okay if you're not in the space that you think others are because, uh, again, social media for all of its good can also lead to this false narrative on people's lives. And so, I mean, particularly, I'll say for the younger folks that I'm around, I try to encourage to them as much as possible to keep their head down, to, you know, really focus in on what makes them happy, to change things up as needed. I ran into one of my former interns from the Kennedy Center recently. And at the time that she was working with us, it was an unpaid internship. But I knew with her experience that she could get an entry level job. And so when she came in, I encouraged her to find other jobs. <laughs> it was like, I encouraged her to go get paid. And luckily she took me up on that and, you know, was able to use that as a, a really firm step stool in her career forward. She came over and thanked me for that. But it's that thing of just, yeah, I, I encourage people to do what they need to do for themselves in a real way, not based on like the narrative that we end up consumed by because of how people portray their lives on social media. Honestly, I needed to hear that advice and that reminder today. So thank you for that. And thank you for this amazing conversation. I really appreciated hearing about sort of your journey and how every stage of it has led you to where you are now and the way that you're contributing to the communities around you and how they're contributing and enriching your life as well. So thank you again so much. And I'm excited for everybody else to enjoy this conversation as well. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate you, Miriam, and everything that you're doing just to share the stories of all of these different industries and and different approaches around the work. The 
Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really, really big difference to our community. 